If you want to turn back one chapter, first chapter to 1 Samuel 30, that's where we're going to begin our time. And before we jump into the story, the narrative of 1 Samuel 30, I wanted you to remind you of a, an important person in international mission work, someone I was reminded of when I was listening to a message this week, a guy named Eric Little. Who's heard of Eric Little? Raise your hand. Everybody's. Chariots of Fire. You've seen the film, right? Runs like a crazy person. Eric Little was the runner in Chariots of Fire. Not as many people, although many of us here might know this. He was a Christian, and he spent most of his life, not in athletic training, but the most important years of his life as a missionary in China. And as a missionary in China, he was there during the time where, when the Japanese were invading Japan. I say the Japanese were invading Japan. That's pretty simple. For them, anyway, they're already there. They were invi- the Japanese uh, were invading China. It was becoming more and more dangerous for missionaries in China to be there. In fact, most uh, British agencies, including Eric Little's uh, uh, mission agency, the China Inland Mission, uh, he was Scottish, uh, had told all of their missionaries to leave, and Eric Little said, yeah, so what? I'm staying. His family left. He stayed. Eventually, the uh, Japanese invaded, and he was put into an internment camp along with uh, 2,000 other uh, people in a, uh, an area that would have been far smaller than the space that this church is on. There was 20 toilets for the 2,000 of them. Many fell sick. Many were ill. One author in particular who survived it, a guy named Gilkey, uh, shared his testimony coming out of his time in that internment camp. He said it really became uh, a, a, a you know, survival of the fittest situation. And he said it, it didn't matter what your, your creed or your faith, whether you had belief and faith in God or not, the people who were uh, not religious uh, said, well, I must fight for my own life because might makes right. Uh, the religious people would do the same thing. They would just come up with a religious argument to take from children and the elderly and the weak. Everyone was just simply trying to stay alive, and most didn't do a very good job of it. He said, except for one guy spent all of his time in the internment camp simply serving others. That was Eric Little. He came up with ways to keep the young men from fighting each other. He set up hockey games. I don't know what the difference is between a hockey game and guys fighting each other. I think it's, it's essentially the same thing. It's just it has rules. So he served and he served until finally he had uh, uh, massive headaches and he died. They had discovered later he had an inoperable brain tumor. What's the difference between a guy named like Eric Little and the hundreds of other missionaries, Christian missionaries in the internment camp? Eric Little spends his time serving the, the members of the imprisonment while even most of the other missionaries there spent their time simply trying to stay alive to the detriment of the weak and the young. What was the difference? The difference was Eric Little didn't need to survive. He had already gained everything he needed. He already had everything he needed. All, for Eric Little, all wasn't lost. He had the Lord. What else was there to lose for him? There was nothing to lose. He had everything he could need. He had the Lord. All wasn't lost. This would explain why it was no big deal for him, according to his convictions, uh, to miss uh, certain Olympic races because he didn't feel it was appropriate to race on certain days of the week. Because he had what he needed. He had the Lord. What else is there to lose? There's nothing to lose. All wasn't lost for Eric Little in that internment camp. He had the Lord. For others, all was lost, and the game was to see what you could retain to stay alive. This morning, we're going to compare Saul and David, as we often do on these mornings, and we're going to look at the ways they approach things in their life when all is lost. When all is lost. So that's the title, if you like titles and you like jotting things down. Some people do, some people don't. When all is lost. We're going to look at David, and we're going to say this. When all is lost, nothing is lost. I'll explain that in a minute. But we're going to look at David's life. When all is lost, nothing is lost. Then we're going to look at the life of Saul, and we're going to understand this. When God is lost, all is lost. For David, when all is lost, nothing is lost. And for Saul, when God is lost, all is lost. Let's look at the the historical event here to start in chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. David and his men went home. I don't know if you remember what had happened. They were going out with the Philistines to fight against Israel, and they were dismissed for fear of treachery. And so they returned home, and when they got to their home, 
Ziklag, they discovered that all of their wives and all of their children had been taken captive, and their city, Ziklag, had been burned to the ground. The Amalekites, boo, I thought you guys knew what to do here, okay. The Amalekites had raided Ziklag, had attacked it, had taken captive all of David's children, David's two wives, Abigail, remember Abigail, oh, we love Abigail, she's kidnapped. All of the men's wives and children that were with him were kidnapped and taken away. Of course, at this point, the the men uh, may not even know if they're alive, or if they are alive, what kind of condition they might be in. Look with me at verse 2 of chapter 30. And they, the Amalekites, had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but they carried them off as they went on their way. Verse 3, David and his men reached Ziklag, and they found it destroyed, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Of course you can't imagine. Nobody can imagine that unless you've had it happen. This is the worst possible thing. If you had to choose between dying and seeing your family die, which would you choose? That's not a hard question, is it? You're going to face a lot of hard questions this week. That isn't one of them. And these guys had to face that in that moment. Oh, that we had been taken captive. David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. One or two or many of us know what that feels like. To weep and to weep until you get to the point where you want to keep crying, you just don't have the strength. That's what they did. It gets worse for David. His men were a little bit upset. What do you do when things go bad? What's the first thing you do? Weep. Second thing you do, figure out whose fault it is. And it was David's fault. David was in great distress because his men were getting together and having meetings, putting together a meeting on stoning him. Let's get a, a committee put together to select stones. And they were, they were going to say, let's, let's stone him to death and do it with really, really small stones so it takes a long, long time. They were mad. I made that part up, okay? His men were upset. They wanted him dead because it was this Yahoo's fault that our families are gone and we are completely without possessions. Not only are we bankrupt, our families are gone. Look at the end of verse 6. It's critically important. David found his strength in the Lord his God. We're going to need to understand something about David here. He's certainly not perfect. Don't assume that. But for David here, we understand all is lost. He has lost everything. He's lost the loyalty of his men. He has no money. He has no food. He has no family. But when all is lost, David is saying nothing is lost here. I have the Lord, and my losses are minimal. David said to the priest, bring me the ephod. It's a fancy way in the Old Testament of saying it's time for a prayer meeting. He brings the priest over, and David inquired of the Lord, and he said, Lord, because he hasn't lost God, he hasn't lost anything. Lord, should I pursue this raiding party, will I overtake them? And God says, go get them. Wouldn't that be cool? God says, yeah, let's get it on. David says, good, that's what I like to do. So David seeks the Lord, and the Lord says, yes, you will certainly overtake them, and you will succeed in, and now he tells him good news, in the rescue, not the recovery. He says, you will succeed in rescuing your family. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. You will succeed in rescuing him. So he gets all his men together. He gets 600 men, and they take off full speed ahead. And they're going to go for it. They've got to catch up with the Amalekites, which means they have to travel faster than the Amalekites, which shouldn't be too hard. They're driving forward with all the possessions of David's city as well as his family. They get part of the way there, and they get to a large ravine, and 200 of his guys are gassed out. They're like, we're done. We can't go another step further. And David says, don't worry about it. You hang here. We'll go. So he takes 400 of his guys. He leaves 200 behind. He takes the rest of his guys, and he keeps making his way towards the Amalekites. On the way there, they come across this Egyptian. Verse 11, if you're following along in your scripture. They come across this Egyptian in a field. I've never had that happen. 
They did. They came across an Egyptian in the field. You have to understand where the Philistines were live and where David was Ziklag is. It's, it's not terribly far from Egypt, so it may not be completely out of the, the normal to find an Egyptian in this area, but find him in the field. They certainly knew he must have been a part of the Amalekite force. They gave him some water. They gave him some food. Uh, they gave him some figs to eat, some fig newtons, it says. They gave him two cakes, cakes of raisins. They brought him to strength, and, and we discover he'd been in this field for three days with no food and no water because he had taken ill, and his Amalekite master had cast him aside and said, I don't need you. I don't need a sick servant. You're done. And he walks away. He leaves his, his servant for dead. And David's men come to him, and they feed him and give him water and he, he tells to David in, in verse 13, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. We raided the Negev of the Carathites, some territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb. And we, listen, what does he say? We burned Ziklag. What did he just say? I torched your house. Not they. Notice that he does. Not they. This Egyptian servant is telling David, uh, just full disclosure here, man, I torched your home. I was in the army. I was there. I watched it burn. I watched them take them captive. And David says, can you lead me to him? He says, yes, I can if you'll keep me alive. And David does just that. So this Egyptian found in the field leads David and his men down to the Amalekites. And David fights them all day. Fights them and kills them, and the rescue is successful. Only 400 people escape. What does that tell you about the size of the Amalekite army? It was bigger than David's force. David only had 400 guys. The escapees from the Amalekites was 400, so it must have been a very large army. David had the advantage of being sober while the Amalekites appear to be, have been celebrating. It's hard to fight an enemy when there's two of all of them. Nothing was missing, verse 19, nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else that had been taken. David brought everything to back. He took all his flocks. His men drove him ahead saying, this is David's plunder. They made their way back to the 200 guys who were taking a break. Remember those 200 guys? Guys who were gassed out? And he gets back, and there were some worthless guys among his group of people. And they said, you know what? Those guys, they didn't fight. They didn't do anything. All they did was slow us down. The best thing that ever happened to us is them stopping. You know what, David, our suggestion? Give them their families back. Sayonara. Take a hike. We don't need you. And David said, no way. No way. Equal share of the plunder for those who stay with the baggage or those who fight in the battle. Just because they didn't go to war with us doesn't mean they don't share in the plunder. My brothers, this should not be. The Lord has given us this and he protected us from this. So from that time on in David's army and his military, the policy was the guy who stayed with the baggage protecting the supplies got just as much of the plunder as the guy in the battlefield. They make their way back to Ziklag, and David even sends much of the plunder to the people of Israel, the elders in Judah, sharing with them what God had provided. When all is lost, nothing is lost for David, because David has the Lord. And so when everything was gone, David seeks the Lord. In prayer, he seeks the Lord. And I want you to make note of one thing up in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 30, if you will. David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? He comes to the Lord with something he knows he can do on his own. This is why I think this is one of the most interesting prayers in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, we will see in the Old Testament people coming to the Lord for help because they have no options. Like, what? Are you, God, show up here or I'm a dead man, right? Here's David coming to the Lord, seeking his direction, despite the fact that he knows he has the ability to get this done. He's got, what if God would have said no? 
What would have David have done? Here's a fighting man with 600 brave soldiers. He can easily march into the, uh, the wilderness and overtake the Amalekites. And he comes first to the Lord and says, God, it's not as though I can't do this. I need to know if you want me to do this. I don't know if you remember what kind of guys David was traveling with. 1 Samuel 22, 2 reminds us of this. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. So David he comes before the Lord and says, Listen, God, I've got these guys. We already know they're bent, discontented, distressed, in debt. I know how these guys normally respond, God, when everything's taken away discontented, so God, certainly you want me to go to battle, right? Maybe this is just too much of an aside, so I'll say it this way so I don't want you to feel too bad. I find that I I spend a lot of time praying for those things I can't control, and I don't spend quite as much time praying about those things I know I can handle, and here we have a, a guy in the scripture seeking the Lord in regard to something very specific that he has the skills and resources to handle, no problem. And nonetheless, even in the midst of that, even though he had lost everything, he still came to the Lord and said, Lord, do you want me to go do this? Or, here's another way of saying David's prayer, or God, have you purposed to take everything from us on purpose? Because God, if that's your call, that's what you've decided to do. I mean, could you imagine? What if God would have come back? David, yes, I've decided to take your wives from you and all of your possessions. You're going to need to be okay with that. See, you can't pray a prayer like that if you need God's answer a particular way to be okay. See, the win for David in this prayer is the fact that he has God who will listen to him. He doesn't need God to answer a particular way to have uh, gained everything back. He needs God to answer, and then he knows God has answered. I have everything I could ever want because God's purpose is done in my life. I submit to you, God, my abilities. I submit to you, God, my resources. I submit to you, God, everything I could possibly do, and I will do what you command. You don't have to turn there unless you want to, but Psalm 25, many think, was likely written around this time. If it wasn't, it still certainly might express David's attitude. I'm going to read most of it, if not all of it, and give you a few comments here. Verse Uh, Psalm 25 of David, verse 1. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Not my 600 guys. Not my sword skills, which David had many. Not my strategy skills, which David was uh, the most strategic military commander in the Old Testament. Not my personality, which can call men to do things they might not otherwise be willing or able to do. But God, where does he put his trust? In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Let me add this to that verse. I think it's true. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, no matter what the outcome might be. David is saying, no, I know you will not be put to shame even if you don't want in this situation what I want. Shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause, Amalekites. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Do not remember the sins of my youth. David sounds like me. Sounds like you, probably. You ever had something bad happen in your life? First thing you do in your prayer is you go to the Lord and you're trying to figure out what bad thing you did that he's hitting you upside the head over. You're confessing sins that in most places aren't even sins. God, I know I, I should have stopped at the crosswalk for that one guy, but he was walking so slow. There was no marking either. And I couldn't tell, was he going to cross or was he just standing on the curb? You can never tell. Like, make your move. Not like this has ever happened to me. 
God, don't remember the sins of my youth. God, I want you to deal with me not according to my behavior. What does he say? I want you to deal with me according to what? Your nature. See, God, I know what you're like, and I know what I'm like. So, so if I'm going to choose with how you might deal with me, I want you to choose to deal with me in regard to, to your nature, not my behavior, because my behavior is real bad. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his ways. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful to, toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is what? Great. And he hasn't even met Bathsheba yet. He's imploring in the Lord, hear my prayer, not because I am a good person, but hear my prayer because you are a good God. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release me, my feet from my snare. David might say this, only he will release my feet from the snare, even though I know how to open this snare. It is better for God to release me than for me to release me. Turn to me and be gracious, for I am lonely and afflicted. I think that makes sense. When David's family has been stolen and his men are seeking to stone him, Turn to me and be gracious to me. I am lonely and afflicted. God, relieve the troubles of my heart. Free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies. How fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame for I take refuge in you. Just one last reminder of this. He is taking refuge in, refuge in God despite the fact that he had the ability and resources perhaps to make his own refuge. That's what's important about this particular narrative here. In, in contrast to some other places where you have uh, many Old Testament saints and prophets crying out to God for refuge because they have no other refuge. And this is David saying, oh, no, no, I've got swords, I've got men, I've got military, I have strength. I'm not taking refuge in that. Because that's a lame refuge compared to you, O oh God. David probably wouldn't say lame. I agree with you. Okay. My integrity and upright, may integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in the Lord. Deliver Israel, O oh God, from all their troubles. David here submits himself to God and says, God, do your work. God, do your thing. I will not rest in my own abilities. I will rest in only your abilities. God, what would you do here? I am uh, uh, attacked on both friendly fronts and enemy fronts, and I, I don't know what to do, God, but I'm expecting and asking you, God, to deal with me according to who you are, not according to what I have done. Over in Philippians chapter 2, I just want to make reference to this before we jump back into the, mess, the story of David. Therefore, my dear friends, if you, this Philippians 2, verse 12. I'm trying to decide if I have the right verse. I don't think I do. Here it is. Obviously, by Philippians 2, verse 12, I meant Philippians 1, verse 6. I don't even know why I had to explain that. You should have just known that. If you divide both by 2, you get 1, 6. See how that works? Okay. I'm going to begin in verse 3. It's getting crazy. I thank my God every time I remember you. Paul speaking to the Philippians. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day in now, until now. He's thanking them for their partnership in the gospel. These are effective and powerful Christians, the Philippians. 
generous Christians, loving. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. So here's these, this fantastic church. This church is an encouragement to Paul. He wants uh, to protect them from the invasion of legalism and a religious obligation. Uh, but nonetheless, this is a good church with, with good people who have sought to be empowered by the gospel. And who, what does he claim is the power of their advancement towards being Christ? Is it their goodness, their ability to be a good Christian church? To, what is it? He who began a good work in you will continue it. Jesus is the one who will draw you by his spirit to be more like Christ. Not our skills, not our abilities, not our resources, not our good discipline, not our uh, intelligence, whatever it might be for us that we feel good about. I I love Jesus because I can use X. And Jesus says, I'm going to use me to make you like me. We bring nothing to the table. It's just simply Jesus, by the power of his spirit, making us more and more like Christ. If you're depending on yourself to become more like Christ... You're depending on too small a thing. The only one who can really conform us into the image of Jesus is the Spirit doing His work in us. Let me just uh, use this as an example. Think in your head of the time in your life where you grew the most in the Lord. Usually it was an event in your life. You can remember, some of you will think right to it. I remember a spot. And a lot of times, for many people, not always, for many people, they'll say, this happened, and so I had to come to the Lord and seek His help. And in the midst of that, I grew. So, so this event happens in your life, whatever it might be. It's something good, something challenging. I don't know what it might be. And so what's interesting is very, very few people will, will look to their own efforts when asked, what was that moment in your life where you saw yourself growing the Lord? Usually it was God throwing something into your life that blew it up. And now all of a sudden, I've got to depend on the Lord like no one's business. I don't mean to make you feel bad about yourself, but Jesus just does a lot better of job of making you a Christian than you do at making you a Christian. And this is David's claim. In the midst of the trial and the difficulty, he says, God, I trust you to do the job. I'm simply in the midst of that going to rest in you doing it. A couple of things to point out about David, and then we're going to move on to King Saul. I almost said Apostle Saul. If I have lost everything, if in my mind, I, if in David's mind he had lost everything, then he would be forced to say, I've got to get it back, I've got to rescue them. But if David had lost nothing, he can simply say, I trust God and his provision. I trust God and his movement. So in the middle of that, as a result of David being able to move into the situation saying, I've really lost nothing because I still have the Lord, he could do several things that are very stunning. First thing he could do is he could offer grace to someone he should have killed, the Egyptian. They come across an enemy in a field near death. David could have said, I will offer him the grace of a swift death. Instead, though, he offers him provisions, water, food, rest. He discovers, once he brings him back to a somewhat revived condition, that this guy had actually participated in the raid against his hometown. And David doesn't kill him. The Bible doesn't record his death anyway. He says, do not kill me, and do not give me back to the Amalekites. See, if David had already lost everything, then he would need revenge, wouldn't he? And he would kill this guy. Maybe bring him back to the health and kill him. But he didn't do that. If nothing is lost, if I still have everything I might need, that is, the Lord himself, then I have the capacity to offer grace where it should be applied. And David offers grace to this Egyptian who leads them to the Amalekites. If I lose everything, I need revenge for what I have lost. I don't know where I'll seek it, the one who has taken my stuff. 
the one who has caused me displeasure. Perhaps it's God. This is where many of us go through difficult times in life, and the extent of our Christian experience is a raised fist towards heaven. Why, God, did you do this? We've all lived that way. We've all had that in our life. But other times, we know people who have caused us problems. Sometimes they live in our homes. Sometimes it's extended family, former workers, or former employees, former employers. But if at the end of the day I haven't lost anything because I still have the Lord as my treasure, then revenge is not necessary and I have the capacity by God's grace and favor to extend that grace to others. I want you to understand this. David's extending of grace to the Egyptian was not a matter of a good, godly man being really nice. David's ability to offer grace to the Egyptian was the function of someone who loved God so much. So this is not a, a movement of spiritual discipline where David's saying, you know what, good, I almost said Christian, good law-abiding kings of Israel, just nice to enemies, right? That's just what good guys do. That's not, that's not his framework here. Remember Psalm 25. He is so overwhelmed by a God who would use him and a God who would love him and a God who would set aside his sins that he might experience his favor that the grace flows from David to the Egyptian because God has shown his favor to David. The, the grace shown to the Egyptian is a function of, God's, uh, of David's affection for God himself. It's impossible to extend grace if the stuff we lost is more important than the God we still have. Because there's no grace to extend. In order to extend grace, the God we still have must be our treasure. Okay, David offered grace. Secondly, David is generous with his plunder. Do you remember when Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites? Remember that story? Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites. Of course, he didn't. And secondly, Saul wasn't supposed to take any plunder from the Amalekites. So Saul did two things wrong. Number one, he didn't kill all the Amalekites. And secondly, he pounced on the plunder, as the, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 15. David, on the other hand, recovered a great plunder from the Amalekites, and he wasn't prohibited from doing so. There's two stories in 1 Samuel 14 and 15. You don't have to turn there. You can read them again if you'd like to. One story, uh, Saul invaded and was fighting against the Philistines, and he had told his men, he said, listen, cursed be anyone who eats anything today before the Philistines are dead. Real genius general here. Guys, I want to make sure you go into battle good and hungry. What a moron. I mean that in the nicest way. So those guys are starving to death. And once the battle is over, they're so hungry, they're pouncing on the Philistine animals and literally eating them in the open field, no cooking, no butchering, cutting slabs of meat off of the animals to eat because they're starving. Now, that's how some of you like your meat cooked. That's your deal, not mine. Like, bring the cow by, I'll cut something off. Don't worry about it. Secondly, in the next chapter, he was told specifically not to maintain or retain any of the plunder from the Amalekites, and his men that time did keep the plunder from the Amalekites. Let's contrast that with David. David's marching 600 guys, and 200 of them get wore out. What does he do? Guys, take a break. Let's not be crazy. You guys need rest. Rest. God's got this. I can do this with three guys if he wants me to. I'll take the 400. No problem. You guys chill. I mean, you see the difference between Saul and David there? Uh, for Saul, he would have been, no, you guys starve to death until the battle is over. For David, he said, guys, you rest. And then when the plunder was taken, he was generous both to his men and also to the men who had remained behind at the baggage. Not only that, he then sends even more plunder to the elders of Israel. Essentially saying, I am your king and I will make provision by God's generous hand. He was not looking to grasp onto what was his. He could do this because he hadn't lost anything. He already had the Lord and nothing was lost. And so when he had gained it back, he didn't need to grasp onto what he thought was his. He makes this point regarding the plunder in 1 Samuel 30. Number one is the plunder was given by God. It was not payment from God for their services as a military. 
So the military didn't go in and say, listen, we get paid, right? David is saying, listen, guys, the victory was God's, not ours. We just showed up. We, our job in, in this uh, battle was attendance. Nailed it. And God provided the victory, so the plunder, therefore, is whose? God's. So because God is our treasure and because God is the one who provides, we can be generous with what he has given. The second thing that David would point out was, listen, of all the things we gained in this battle, the plunder is the least important. What is the most important thing that his army got to experience in the battle? The power of God himself. David was saying, listen, God showed up. And you're worried about how many cows you're taking home? If God is showing up in your life, how many cows do you need? The, the least of the rewards they received that day was the plunder. The greatest thing they received that day was the a clear and powerful work of God to protect them and to provide for them and to give, him, give them his presence in the midst of their challenge. And the final thing David wants to point out is everybody on this crew is, is important. From the guy carrying the water to the guy with the big sword. Every single one of these people are vitally important to the work that God is doing. I would just want to touch on that point over in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, it uh, begins in verse 4. This is not King Saul, but Apostle Paul, writing to the believers in Rome, and he says this about the body of Christ, the church, or the gathered united Christians, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, verse 5, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If your gift is prophesying, prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's uh, leading, then do so diligently. If it's mercy, do it cheerfully. He echoes this again over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think it's worth reading it. I like this illustration he makes. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop to be a part of the body. If the guy at the baggage train should decide, well, I'm not in the military, so therefore I don't matter, he doesn't therefore stop being a part of the body for David. He, he is a vital part of what God was doing. And Paul says the same thing. If an ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that, that reason stop being a part of the body. Every part of the body is vital. Every part of the body is critically important. There's not one single member of the body of Christ where Jesus brings them into the body of Christ and says, oops, sorry. Yeah, I guess you can come too. Are you trying to find something to do and stay out of the way. I mean, try to make sure the heavy hitters get plenty of room. Come on. You know, like the last kid, get, last kid getting picked on the playground? Yeah, that was me. I can own it. All right, Greg, come on over. Try not to get out. Who's that kid? Come on, let's own. Who's this? Just me. Okay, great. <laughs> I mean, I was the guy I always picked first, I should say. Oh, never mind. <clears throat> that we don't have any of those in the body of Christ. There isn't one. Every single member, every single part is vital, and that is, is true not because each person can contribute something, but because each person has Jesus, because each person has a relationship with the risen Savior, and so therefore each person has Christ. What, what more could a person offer to the body of Christ? David offers grace, and David offers generosity, and David understands the importance of every single person in his group. And this is absolutely true because not anything is lost, no matter what we've lost. Because as David 
could understand, we still have the Lord. If we treasure him and understand who he is, then, then no matter what is lost, nothing is lost. Can't really overstate the difficulty of David's situation before we move on to Saul. One commentator said it this way, you think Job had it bad? David's situation at Ziklag was Job times 600. Every single one of his guys was going through a Job situation. And everybody looked at David and said, we've lost everything. And David, because he had a relationship with the Lord, says, I don't know, I don't think we've lost anything. Because we have the Lord still. If you look through the Psalms that David has written, you'll understand David's desire and affection for the Lord was such that this isn't some trite religious statement. This is David who had an affinity and a devotion to God because he said, this God is, is amazing. You can take anything away from me, and if I still have him, I have everything I need. When all is lost, nothing is lost when we have the Lord. All right, let's go over and look at King Saul. Not Apostle Saul, King Saul. I'm trying to keep those straight today. We read the story of his demise here, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 31. He meets his end as predicted by Samuel in uh, uh, 1 Samuel 29, who told King Saul he would die at the hands of the Philistines. For Saul, we have to understand this. He had lost God by his own decision He had turned aside from what God was doing in his kingdom and said, I want my own kingdom and God's ways aren't my ways. So for Saul, when God is lost, all really is lost. At the end of his life, he was seeking to move his life to uh, ever-increasing pinnacles of uh, sovereignty and rulership over the kingdom of Israel, seeking to constantly expand his borders and his importance and his control. Really what Saul was doing was nothing more than what most of us do. He was building a giant kingdom to Saul, a giant kingdom of self. And God could be worked into that kingdom when it seemed convenient. But for the most part, this was a kingdom of Saul. And at the final moment of his life, he wouldn't even let God determine when his final breath would be. And he took his own life. In verse 4 of 1 Samuel 31, we see this, as Saul is wounded by archers, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. Keeping in mind that this armor bearer job used to be held by King David. Second string armor bearer comes in, and this guy knows more about what it means to be king of Israel than the king of Israel does. Who is supposed to raise their hand against the anointed one? David has told us this many times. Who? None but the Lord himself. And so King Saul turns to his armor bearer and says, kill me. And this armor bearer is terrified. Uh, Number one, maybe kind of a pansy. We don't know the guy. But I think it's more likely, given the themes of 1 Samuel, that this armor bearer feared the Lord more than his dying king. And he knew, no, 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 I am not going to make my final act on this earth disobeying the Lord and taking the life of the anointed one. That's God's job, not mine. And so he refused to do so. This second string armor bearer, again, like I say, probably knows more about what God is doing in the kingdom than the king himself. Saul once again does something that is God's job, not his job. He falls on his own sword and takes his life to avoid mistreatment, and torture. Israel flees, the Philistines invade. The armor bearer follows his king's suit and falls on his sword as well. What a tragic end for King Saul. A humiliating end. A king shouldn't fall on his sword to avoid a little discomfort. Saul was king of Israel for 40 years. Can you believe that? It's a long time to be king of Israel. Over in 1 Chronicles 10, the author there tells us why King Saul died the way he did. You can turn there and just listen. I'll read what 1 Chronicles 10 says, beginning in verse 10. In verse 10, we discover what they did. Of course, they came to King Saul when they discovered him, and they stripped him of his armor and put that 
in the temple of their gods, and they cut off his head, and they put it in the temple of Dagon. Certainly, they cut off his head as a way of revenge for what happened to Goliath so many years earlier. Verse 13 of 1 Chronicles 10. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance. And he did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Who put Saul to death? Not Saul. As much as he's grasping for control and a kingdom, David, or I should say, God is the one whose purpose was done. King Saul decided his treasure was his kingdom and not God, and so he lost his treasure and never gained God. Whereas David, in Ziklag, decided his treasure was God and not his kingdom, and so when he had lost everything, he had lost nothing. I want to draw one other contrast between David and Saul before we move to close. How long did David rule as king? Interesting, it's 40 years as well. David ruled 40 years after Saul had died. I don't know if you know this or not, David also died with nothing. You have to really pay attention in 1 Kings, but you realize that David amassed a a massive fortune and he left 100% of his estate to build the temple, which God told him he couldn't build. David's later life was nothing more than a massive amassing of assets, not that he might spend them and live in the luxury that his son uh, eventually earned, but rather so that the, the temple that God prohibited him to build could have all the gold it needed. If you read through that, you realize the massive quantities of gold that were installed were not earned by Solomon, but were rather given by David. I think this idea that God perhaps was David's treasure is realized that David reigned 40 years. He died with nothing. He gave everything to build the temple of God because he already had all the treasure he needed in the Lord himself. Calm down. We're not going to apply that to giving at church. Take a deep breath. We're fine, okay? It's not what we're talking about here. But listen, I want you to understand something about David here. God told Moses that another prophet's going to come, and he's going to be like you, Moses. He's going to be better, but he's going to be like you, Moses. We look at all the, the priesthood from Aaron and going on down, and we look at this priesthood, and we understand a better priest is coming, one who will not only make offerings for us, but will be an offering for us. A priesthood is coming. A prophet is coming. A priest is coming. And David, a king, is coming, and he's going to be like you. He's going to be the son of David. He's going to treasure God above all other things. He's going to treasure the Father's will above anything this world might offer. He's going to do the Father's will to the exclusion of his own purpose. Saul, on the other hand, is everything Jesus was not. Look at the end of Saul's life. What did he do? He took his own life. For what reason? It's amazing, I think. To avoid mistreatment. I don't want those uncircumcised fellows to torture me. And then I I look at our Savior. And he stayed alive exactly as long as the Father wanted him alive to enter into mistreatment. He said, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll let those uncircumcised fellows mistreat me as long as the Father deems fit. He entered into mistreatment. He entered into humiliation on purpose according to the Father's will. Unlike Saul, he didn't hold on to control and say, my kingdom come. He said, Father, your will be done. Unlike Jesus, Saul commanded his followers with his last breath, disobey God and kill me. Whereas Jesus called his followers into obedience. And then when they failed miserably, he said, don't worry about it, it's covered. Jesus is the true king. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. Let me just make this suggestion coming out of 1 Samuel. If we have Jesus, we gain God. What can be lost? If we have Jesus, what do we gain? 
we gain the Father, what then can be lost? What can be lost? No, absolutely nothing can be lost. Matthew 16, a couple of verses. You're saying, why do you make us turn the Bible so much? Because I know you're going to sleep. It helps you get, stay awake. Also because it matters. Matthew 16, verse 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus is saying, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. I tell you, some who are standing right here will not taste death before they see the coming of the Son of Man. Sometimes we read that. He who uh, seeks to gain his life will lose it. And, we, and now we come, okay, I've got to be really sacrificial for Jesus to love me. That's not the argument he's making. The argument he's making is seek the greater treasure. What do you say at the end? Listen, I'm coming. I'm coming with angels. I'm coming with the Father's kingdom. Seek that treasure. It never goes away. Seek that God. He's a really good God. This is the kind of God we had, that he is so gracious he would implore us not to seek empty treasure. He says, come to me, I'm good. It's going to be awesome. He's not trying to convince us to live a miserable life that one day we might have some ounce of happiness in heaven. That's not the call here. He's saying, no, just seek treasure that will actually satisfy, which is God himself. Mark chapter 10, verse 35, a couple of disciples come to Jesus, James and John, Sometimes they call James Jimbo. I, I'm making that up. I say that kind of thing. Keep, make sure you're still with me. Okay, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You've had your kids do this. Mom, can I have something? What? Tell me you're going to give it to me, and then I'll ask. Get out of here. I always tell my kid, my default answer is no. Convince me otherwise. It's how this is going to be. That's not good parenting. I'm sorry. Don't follow my example. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drank and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Oh, yeah, 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 we can do that, no problem. Yeah, you're going to. Have fun with that. To sit on my right or left, these places belong for those who have been prepared. And Jesus wants you, you've missed the point. The point is not what chair you're sitting in. It, the point is, do you have the one in the middle chair? If you have the one in that throne, you won't care if you have a lawn chair in the back 40. Because if you have that one, you have it. There's nothing more you could possibly treasure. The correction they needed was not desire for honor in the kingdom. The correction they needed was honor is found in the kingdom in this one. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells the parable of a vineyard. This is my last reference here. A landowner hires guys in the morning and says, I will pay you a denarius for a day's work. And so he hires some guys in the morning. At about nine, he hires some more guys. And he said, would you get to work in my vineyard? And they say, yeah, sure, no problem. Then at noon, uh, he went and got some more guys and he hired them. Hey, my vineyard has a lot of work to be done. Go, go and do it. And then at the end of the day, when the day was almost over, he even got some more guys. And at the end of the day, guess what this crazy guy did? He paid them all a denarius. And the guys who were, who were hired at the beginning got all angry because they got paid what they were agreed to. And the, and the owner of the vineyard says, it's my money. I can be crazy with it if I want to. I can do this. And the point of the story is not merely the first will be last, the last will be first, which is secondarily the point. What is the point? This is the kind of God we have that everybody in the kingdom will be overpaid. I mean, this is, this is great. We tend to think, we're gonna, if I'm a really good Christian, then I'm going to break even on the deal. God's going to hook me up, but it's going to be kind of like I get paid for what I do. No, no, no. You've missed the point of the parable. The point of the parable is we're all overpaid. This is what's crazy. And this is where David and the guys, the baggage, blows my mind. I don't know how to say this politely, and I don't say much politely. Don't be offended. If you are, it's your fault. 
See, now I've offended you. That means the lamos have it better. The slackers. They, they, you know, those guys who can't get over their stuff, but they're clinging to Jesus, but their addictions have them all messed up. The lazy bums, you know who they are. You judge them all the time. We all do. I don't, I'm not blaming just you. We all do. I can't believe that guy's a Christian. What kind of a God would overpay that guy? God, don't you know what I've been doing for you? Yeah, I'm overpaying you too. Yeah, but not enough, God. Let's be serious. We need to re-enter contract negotiations here. Why does this matter? This is the God we have. He overpays all of us. The, the problem is, when we read a story like David and the Amalekites, we think we're David. We're the ones at the baggage, just hoping that our Messiah will show up with a reward. This is the kind of God we have. Maybe you think of your, think about your Christian life for a little bit, or maybe you're just your life in general. Think of David's army and those guys who hung back at the baggage. And this, I think there's a fair question. How many of us would describe our Christian life or our regular life with God this way? I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. This has been a long haul. I don't think I have anything left in the tank. I don't think I have anything left to offer. God, if you don't do something, nothing's happening. You're still in. He's still going to reward you. Isn't that crazy? He's still going to show up and say, I'll hook you up. Jesus, Jesus will come back this way. I killed it for you. Here's your reward. Say, Jesus, I didn't do anything. Yeah, that's just how I am. That's the kind of God we serve. The problem is somehow along the line we got convinced we, we serve a cheapskate. This ogre in the sky that if we don't work our tails off to keep him happy, he's going to smack us upside the head. When in the world did we discover this? This is not in the Bible. If you're finding that in the Bible, guess what? You're reading it wrong. He sent his son to die for rebels. So that the lazy bums who hang out at the baggage, you and me, get rewarded at the end of days. This is a pretty good deal, don't you think? Okay, at some point you people have to say amen. This is driving me nuts. <laughs> is this not a good deal? Yeah. You, now you said it just because I told you. It's not the same. <laughs> amen. Here's, here's, what I, here's what I'm getting at, and I don't know if I've made my point. Sometimes you think, okay, I've got to, I've, God needs to be so important, so the bad stuff in my life... It doesn't seem bad. That's not what I'm saying. For David, this was it was. I have the Lord. And he is so amazing. He is so incredible. He is so generous. He is so gracious. He is so forgiving that every morning I wake up, it's good news again. I still have God. What have I lost? Nothing. Thank you, my brother. If you're an exhausted Christian, you're still in. If you're a fighter in the game, killing enemies, you didn't earn it. Stay at it. Stay fighting. But don't think you're earning it. That's just the Lord working through us. There's plenty of plunder because Jesus got all of it. When you think about my suggestion, when all is lost, nothing is lost. This is what, what I want you to understand. I'm going to close with this. The question here is not, what does God want? The question is, what is God like? You ever wonder what it's going to be like to talk to him when we get to heaven? What are the kind of things, he, when he's got nothing else to do, he talks about? When he goes on vacation, where does he like to go? I have no idea. And you think, well, that's a silly question. I don't think that's a silly question. I mean, at, at this point, we have the Bible, which is a lot, but it's not comprehensive. This is just enough. We're going to get to glory, and we're going to spend eternity finding out what kind of jokes make him laugh. 
the question for our Christian life, if you want to live a life where all is not lost because, because I have the Lord, the question then has to stop being, what does God want? The question for our life then has to continue to be, what is he like? Because every time you discover something that he is like, you will say, that's incredible. I cannot believe he's like that. He brings plunder for the baggage keepers. It's incredible. That is where a guy like Eric Little can go into a prison camp and he doesn't give a rip what tomorrow holds. It's not because he was a good Christian. It's just he had a treasure. He had a God who was that good that he could organize hockey fights to keep kids occupied and he could provide medical care. And it's not because he wanted to earn his way to God. It's because he already had a God that good. The only reason we know that is there were plenty of Christians in that camp who were trying to earn God, and we know exactly what they were like. God wasn't good, and so what is the point?